Hello everyone, welcome to Tales from the End of Times. This is our fifth podcast. I'm Eva Anagnosulautiris, leading an Australian Research Council project on crisis of leadership from the 3rd to the 10th century CE, working together with two wonderful people who will run the podcast today, Dr. Peter Edwell, Senior Lecturer at Macquarie, and Professor Bronwyn Neal, who works with us at the Department of Ancient History at Macquarie, and of course, on the project. The two of them will have a long discussion and how could it not be long because it deals with antichrist in antiquity how the concept of antichrist was first created how it became popular how it is still with us troubling certain groups around the world but of course been at the back of our mind in times of crisis such as those we faced during the pandemic and even today with economical uh, crisis and uncertainty all around the globe Peter, welcome. You will be running the interview with Bronwyn today. Yes, thank you, Eva. Great to be back in Tales from the End of Times. I do love this series. I very much enjoyed Obviously, I listened uh, to the podcast before having this um, introduction. I very much enjoyed uh, all the discussion about, you know, the whore of Babylon and all the juicy uh, details. Yeah, there's some great stuff in this one, isn't there? Yeah. Absolutely. And I particularly liked when you said that Charles Maine proposed to Princess Irene of uh, Byzantium, and that could have averted a whole new phase of apocalypticism or, you know, people waiting for the end of times to, to, to come. It's one of those marriages, isn't it? The one that didn't go ahead, um, one that had it gone ahead. This is Charlemagne and Irene at Byzantium. Um, we may well be living in something of a different world. Um, yeah, it could make for a wonderful novel if there's anybody out there thinking of um, of writing a, uh, a, a a tragic novel, perhaps, on the marriage of uh, Charlemagne and Irene. Actually, you've given me a wonderful idea for a pension scheme right here and right now. <laughs> oh, don't steal it from <laughs> no, me. No, 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 no. I wouldn't dare. How about a collaboration? <laughs> we'll do it together. How's that? We, maybe we'll do it together in our retirement. We could well, have a lot of fun with it. Well, first time you wrote, um, you know, well, it wasn't a novel. It was a biography, all right. But you nearly won the Prime Minister's Award. So this time round, I have an awful lot of hope we may actually sort out retirement <laughs> once and for all. Oh, let's go for the Pulitzer, Eva. We could do the Pulitzer easily, 100% I'm sure. with you there. 100%. <laughs> Without further ado, let us listen to this uh, excellent discussion you've had with uh, our colleague Bronwyn and Neil, and then we'll get at the end of it to discuss and, and make a few more comments, as it were, because we just can't control ourselves, can we? <laughs> okay, great. Terrific. Look forward to it, Eva. Well, welcome, Bronwyn, to the show, uh, Tales from the End of Times. Thank you, Peter. Today's podcast, of course, is on Christian apocalyptic and the Antichrist from the Gospels to the current day. I so, love this topic. Absolutely. A nice, weighty topic here. Um, so, look, let's just start with thinking about the last three years or so. We've seen a number of major events that have caused a lot of people to focus on what the future or even what the immediate future might look like. And, of course, we probably don't need to recap on all the things that have happened, but let's do that briefly now anyway. 2019, if we cast our minds back to them, remember the terrible bushfires that we saw destroying large parts of forest uh, here in Australia. And there was, of course, some terrible loss of, of life and property and towns. And that went on into early 2020, just in time to take us on to the global pandemic, the development of the global pandemic of COVID-19 which, of course, itself became the catalyst for a whole bunch of issues, economic recessions, the loss of many lives, unfortunately, and really serious upheaval to what many of us thought were normal ways of living. And then we can think that, uh, you know, just as COVID sort of seemed to be tamed in some way, although, of course, it's still, it's still raging on, across the world, and especially in Australia, we've seen some, some increasingly extreme weather events. And um, that's included things like Record-breaking rainfall, um, flooding here in Australia and New Zealand, searing heat waves. Uh, London hit forty degrees. Who could possibly have imagined? I'll stop already. Yeah, yeah. I think we, we'd better move on, haven't we? But increasingly, this is what we can think of as a time of global uncertainty. And predictions of unlivable conditions, originally suggested by 2050, in some parts of the world, have now been brought forward really to the immediate future. And science is providing increasing evidence for this. 
but we do still have this question of belief around it in some ways, don't we? Um, uh, where even things like climate change in some parts of the world, particularly in Australia till recently, has perhaps been, been up for debate. But so look, with this immediate background, let's go right back in time, 2,000 years or so to the early days of Christianity, when there was great interest in what we might call the end of times uh, and how events like the ones we've seen playing out over the past few years were interpreted. Now, can I ask you, how were extreme weather events, natural disasters, epidemics, pandemics, interpreted by Christians in the first few centuries of the common era? Yes, well, um, it's a good question, and you might have guessed already from the intro that these were interpreted as signs of the end of days, or that the last times were upon us. Yeah. Yeah, so the end of days was indicated by Jesus in the Gospels as being fairly imminent, even though he said no one knows the day or the hour, and they were also predicted by the Apostle Paul writing to the Christians in the first century CE. And these first century Christians were expecting that the end of days may well come in their own lifetime. Interesting, isn't it? Yeah. But after a while, people were wondering when would it happen and how will we recognize the signs? And after the first 300 years, the thrill of expectation was beginning to wear off. I can imagine it was, but it's this interesting idea that even in the first century, people thought that the end of days would come in their own lifetimes. Now, we hear the terms apocalypse and apocalyptic used all the time today, but what was or even is the apocalypse in the context of Christian belief? Uh, the apocalypse literally just means a revelation or an unveiling. So um, apocalypses were not uncommon in the Judeo-Christian and Roman traditions, um, and they were usually revelations from God to a prophet who would then share it with his community, almost always a him, these prophets. And then this period of the end times and the signs before it, the um, rivers of blood and so on and so forth, storms, terrible storms, plagues, um, came to be known as the apocalypse by association. But also, I suppose, because it reveals it's an unveiling of God's uh, final judgment. Yep. So the lead up to these, uh, to the last day was came to be known as the Apocalypse, as well as the book of Revelation itself. Yeah. But it was only one of many revelations that yeah. were kicking around at the time. Yeah, right. So so Apocalypse, Apocalyptic, and we can move on now to this, this word eschatological. This is another word that comes into play here, isn't it? If you can tell us what that means, because actually I'm going to try and use some of these, these terms in the next Scrabble game I play. So, you know... It's, <laughs> You get a lot of points for these. Yeah, you'd have to be uh, saving some tiles under the table. <laughs> no, like eschatological. You do yeah. that. Yeah. <laughs> so eschatological. I mean, it's because you pay with your two-year-old, right? Like, oh. yeah. <laughs> well, yeah, he beats me every time. <laughs> eschatological means in the end times. So eschaton, tois, eschaton is the Greek for the end, the last thing, and uh, in the plural, the last things. So an eschatological book, if we make it an adjective, would be one about the end times, like, for instance, Paul's second letter to the Thessalonians, mm -hmm. and Jesus preached on the end times, or eschatology. Mm -hmm. So it's pretty much the science, eschatology is the science of the end times, and uh, revela revelation is the means by which you get an eschatological message. Right. Okay, great. Now... Would it be right then to say that these ideas about the last days came from a whole range of different religious and cultural traditions, not necessarily just Christian ones? Yes, that's absolutely right. So it's an idea that has kept resurfacing over the past 3,000 years of human history and in any religion that has the idea of an afterlife. Mm -hmm. um, in Revelation's case, the author's ideas were a mix of Jewish notions about the return of a world saviour or a messiah Messiah just means an anointed one, with some Greek and political ideas thrown in. And the rest of Revelation, the whore of Babylon, the four horsemen of the apocalypse, mm -hmm. the number of the beast he took from the book of the Hebrew prophet Daniel. But the idea is also there in ancient Egypt with the tombs mm -hmm. of the pharaohs which house them until their resurrection. Mm -hmm. So a long way back, yeah. Yeah. They're buried together with anything they might need to be happy in the afterlife, like mm. fancy clothes, jewellery, their cats. 
Um, Things in Tutankhamun's tomb that we can think of. Yeah, yeah, and servants who were sometimes buried alive with them. And it's also there in the ancient religion of Persia called Zoroastrianism. The Zoroastrians, yeah. Yeah, after Zoroaster or the uh, Zarathustra, sometimes called it the great priest of this religion, which was based on the idea of the return of the great god Ahura Mazda, who's the principle of good and light. And he's the enemy or the foe of the evil spirit, Ariman. So this dualistic idea of the fight between um, the powers of light and darkness and a final showdown in the end days is uh, a very ancient one. And it continued through Christianity uh, in ancient sects like Manichaeism. And it's also there in Islam, which awaits the Mahdi or the saviour in the the last days, to rid the world of evil and injustice. So it's a good thing, actually. The last days is expected to be a reward for the righteous at the final judgment, and it's also a way of scaring those that aren't behaving into better behaviour. So is there any reason then that the idea of the last days in early Christian belief appeared when it did? And what had really happened to encourage Christians to think in this way? I think that the catalyst in the first century was the destruction of the second temple in mm. Jerusalem. So it had been destroyed already and rebuilt uh, in the time of Joshua and so on. Under the Assyrians, Cyrus paid for the rebuilding, um, the Assyrian king, and then it got destroyed again by the Romans in 70 AD with the Battle of the Siege of Masada. So the Jews were very much... Um, destroyed by this, and um, we talk about the diaspora of the Jewish people, the scattering of them uh, into many other countries, including uh, Europe and Egypt. Um, and the Christians uh, at that time were few and far between, so we have first have Jewish Christians before. Uh, you can talk about Roman Christians or Christians in the Roman Empire, but it wasn't a state religion yet, so that didn't happen until the 4th century. So it's very interesting given that the end of times presupposes the foundation of a new political order that this would have happened when the Romans actually had a great victory. But it was the overthrowing of uh, the old Rome and the introduction of the Christian Rome in the 4th century that really allowed Christians to make this idea of the end times their own. Um, we'll get on to that a little later on in, 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 the, um, in the podcast, won't we? Um, we we talked a little. We just referred a minute ago to the idea of um, of the end times um, being good for some, and this idea perhaps of being of, of being saved, and you know, and that you're going to be one of those that goes on to this to this life in paradise. But how would you know if you were one of the saved when the end times came? Because you really want to be one of them. Now you want to make sure you're on the right side. Absolutely, and especially when the number was limited in Revelation to 144,000. 144,000. Yeah. I, think, I think I've been at Woolies when there are leaks to 144,000 people wandering the aisle on a Sunday afternoon. I know. Not many, is I'm it? not sure that either of us would make the crowd. So, oh, no, you will. Uh, oh, yeah. come on, Peter. So 144,000 people of exceptional faith. Oh, there you go. So it's a kind of built-in incentivizer, isn't it? Even though that would have been a very large number in the in the, the times of the first century. Mm. Um, but it was also a magic number. According to the science of numerology, this was a special number um, and it was related to the 12 tribes of Israel, which you multiply by 12 again and then by 1,000 and 1,000 years as a kind of magic number. In some ways, 1,000 years just means as long as anyone can imagine. Mm. Yeah, yeah. They couldn't yeah, really yeah. think that far ahead or that far behind. So it's a very, very long time, an eon is the way it's put sometimes. <laughs> so, yeah, there's still people, of course, that take Revelation literally and believe that only 144,000 will be saved. Well, let's hear a verse from Revelation itself. After this, I saw four angels standing at the front corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land, or on the sea, or on any tree. Then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. He called out in a loud voice to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on the foreheads of the servants of our God. Then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 
144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. Revelation 7 verses 1 to 4. Okay, and the rest of the people who weren't sealed with the sign of the Lamb in the passage we just heard from Revelation had the mark of the beast on their foreheads to show that they weren't saved. And this was the famous 666, so another fairly magical number. And these people were associated in the book of Revelation with the whore of Babylon, who was a symbol for the Roman Empire. So 666, the whore of Babylon, the four horsemen of the apocalypse. I feel like I'm at a Black Sabbath concert here, Bronwyn. <laughs> I couldn't... Pass me that dough. <laughs> I'm hungry. No, right. No, no, we won't be doing that. Not in a clean program like this. But um, can you tell us why Rome was equated here with the whore of Babylon? Um, and can you tell us more about the whore of Babylon and why Rome would be uh, seen or depicted in this way? Sure. So the phrase comes from um, the milieu of the book of Daniel, which was meant to have been written when the Israelites were in exile in Assyria. So during the time before the second temple was built. This is back in the 6th century BC we're talking. Yeah, yeah. yeah mm-hmm. that's right. Yeah. Um, so Babylon was another name for the evil Assyrian empire. So the whore of Babylon means um, the kind of evil nature of the enemies of God, dark powers of darkness. And that was meant to be an indicator of an evil colonial power, which in the first century, when we're talking about Revelation being written, was Rome Mm. and stood for the power of the Roman Empire. Yeah, yeah. So you can sort of insert evil colonial here as a way, yeah, so it sort of can work across different time time periods. And then, of course, why would the number 666 have been chosen in the book of Revelation? Yeah, well, it's another magic number according to numerology. Uh, In recent times, some evangelical Christians have been afraid that the microchipping of pets is uh, the equivalent of the mark of the beast. But others have seen uh, the mark of the beast as things like halal certification, which is not funny at all, meaning that uh, food has been prepared in a way that's safe for Muslims to consume um, or, you know, right to consume. So the resistance to halal is linked with a big movement in the US and South Africa and even Australia, mostly among evangelical Christians and, yeah, so this is this is um, yeah this isn't just stuff that people were uh, sort of these wacky ideas that people might have had in the past. They're ideas that some people even still have today, and and are drawing from some of the, these um, these earlier texts. And of course, you know, I can remember an attempt to link credit cards with six 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 when bank card became available um, as the first widely available credit card. And that's if you look at the bank card symbol, it's sort of three Bs within each other, and people interpreted that as 666, and so this was an indication that credit cards were um, uh, the mark of the beast and, and indicative of that, and, um, and some Christians at that stage wouldn't, wouldn't uh, even, even use bank cards. Yes, that was a truly inspired bit of nonsense. Well, <laughs> it's certainly one way to look at it, isn't it? Um, now, how are Christian theologians thinking about the Revelation and its messages or predictions as the centuries unfolded and the end of times clearly hadn't arrived? Right. So there were two ways of thinking about Revelation. One was that it was to be taken literally, and the people that tried to do that ended up being very confused. Yeah. And the others were taking it allegorically. So, for instance, Irenaeus of Lyon in um, modern Gaul of modern France um, wrote a commentary on, Revela- on this passage in Revelation, and he sees the four living creatures in Revelation 4 as the four Gospels. And the four living creatures in Ezekiel, who had four wings each. The 24 elders in Revelation are the five books of the Jewish law and the 19 books of the prophets. The white robes of Revelation 6, where it talks about the righteous being dressed in white, symbolize the Holy Spirit. So you can see an association with baptism. Yeah. They wore yeah. Yeah. white robes for baptism. Yeah. The woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and a crown of 12 stars on her head is the church. Mm. So we see that magic number 12 there, and this is in Revelation 12. And finally, the dragon was the devil, who was, you know, the foe of humankind from the beginning, the kind of archetypal monster. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, so the author of Revelation was inspired by all the Hebrew prophets, not just Mm. the book of Daniel. 
so strongly allegorical as 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 you're pointing out there. Now, some listeners already know that the Roman Emperor Nero, who ruled in the middle of the first century, is often held to have been the worst Roman emperor of all. And this is this is what was clearly thought, particularly after his his death in AD sixty nine. How does Nero come into this topic of the last days, this, you know, bad-to-the-bone Roman emperor? Well, of course, Nero was a fabulous narcissist, and my favourite story about Nero is him giving a concert on the lyre. This is a good one, isn't it? Yes, and uh, he was so keen to do this concert that he decided to lock people in so that he'd have a... A, a captive audience. I do that in lectures. Uh, yeah. 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 They've, yeah. Yeah. They pay attention. What I say. That's right. Oh, health and safety. Two women. Us. Yeah. Women were faking labour to get out of this concert. <laughs> and I think I also remember a story about one of his one of his attendants who'd been locked in there as well, and and of course everyone had to applaud, didn't they? As well, you had to make sure you were applauding rapturously. And he was said to be applauding but weeping. Uh, yeah, mm. <laughs> the beauty of it. Yes. Yeah. So um, Nero was, as you said, the kind of archetypal bad emperor. Even the Romans thought so. Um, and so he was a perfect foil for Constantine in the fourth century, who was the good emperor, mm. the emperor we've been waiting for to lead the Roman people to Christianity. And um, because of the way Nero died, there was an, even an idea that he might be resurrected from the abyss to be the Antichrist himself. Fascinating, isn't it? We'll come back to that idea of Nero's resurrection, as it were, in just a minute. But was this also because Nero is traditionally seen as the first major persecutor of Christian? Yes, Nero blamed the Christians for the fire that destroyed much of the city of Rome. Right, the famous fire. In 64 CE, but most people think he started it himself. Yeah, with his fiddle, I think, and a few and some fire stars. Is that what he did? <laughs> <laughs> no, it couldn't have been because he was fiddling while Rome. But... Yeah, that's right, yeah. So he also had the two great saints of the church killed, mm-hmm. um, the apostles Peter and Paul. Mm-hmm. Well, they weren't saints at the time, but they became so after mm-hmm. they were martyred. And so he was persona non grata with Christians and um, a very good candidate for the Antichrist. And he's the end of the Julio-Claudian line too, isn't he? You know, it starts with Augustus, um, well, to a certain extent, Julius Caesar, but then Augustus, and then and then this bad guy sort of brings, brings it to an end as it were. Now, you mentioned just a minute ago that Nero, this idea of Nero being resurrected. Now, wasn't that reserved for Jesus? And then how does the resurrection relate to the last days? Yeah, so resurrection wasn't for everybody at this stage. As you said, they were waiting for, Christians were waiting for Jesus to come back and there was this idea from Revelation that um, there'd be an evil power that came back first Mm -hmm. and would govern um, over the nations of the earth with God's permission uh, for some period before the last judgment. And maybe this would last for a thousand years. Mm. So um, there's also a thousand years when the righteous would rule um, after the Antichrist was kind of knocked over. So there's these thousand year periods, uh, seems to be two of them uh, that you could read into Revelation. And they laid the ground for this idea of Kiliasm. It's called Kiliasm. Kiliasm. Okay. Greek yeah. Kilia for a thousand. Right. Okay. That's the thousand. Yeah. Yeah. And the resurrection is for those whose names are written in the Book of Life, which was a Persian idea, actually. Mm. So this is, yeah, the idea that um, geez, that an angel or Peter, uh, St. Peter was standing at the gates of heaven with a book and mm. you had to have your name. You had to be enrolled or registered. Mm. Mm. Yeah, like yeah. Coming into a Zoom meeting. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, you have to have a login and password to be able to get in. Yeah, yeah. Okay, so well, we've looked at uh, we've looked at apocalypse, we've looked at revelation, the number of the beast, eschatology and resurrection. All, of course, topics for a light chat over a cup of tea. We don't have a cup of tea. You pass me that bottle. Yeah, yeah. That's right. But we've come to the point where it's time to discuss the idea of the Antichrist. In early Christianity, who was the Antichrist then? Yes, there's no simple answer to this question, unfortunately. So. You- the Antichrist was another impressive and lasting invention of the same period as Revelation uh, in the 50 years following the destruction of the Second Temple in 70. Right. Uh, the term first appears, the term Antichrist first appears in the New Testament letters of John, 
knowing him three letters by um, yep. a John that no one's quite sure who he is. Mm-hmm. Um, John, nonetheless, yeah. But, mm-hmm. but there he talks about antichrists. Oh, so more than one. Yeah, and it could be anybody with great skills in deception that oh. that opposed Christ. Oh, so anti-Christ yep. against yeah. Christ. Yeah, and yep. uh, the great skills in deception. Yeah, the Antichrist's kind of hallmark was he he could make lies sound like the truth. Oh, and make the truth sound like we don't. We can't think of it. I can't think of it. Anyway, I can't. No, 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 not in not in modern politics, no. especially not in America. No, 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 no. And so, uh, the idea of Antichrist really took off when Paul, the Apostle Paul, wrote to the people of the Church of Thessaloniki about the man of lawlessness. Right. And he maintained that before Jesus returned, there would be a rebellion led by the man of lawlessness. Now, in some ways, yeah, this is a, a kind of a corollary to Jesus as the son of man. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. and it just means somebody who's a total anarchist, right. right? Totally out of control. Okay. But in the book of Daniel, he talks about um, the abomination of desolation. Yeah. With Famous like term, isn't the it? worst thing that could happen to the Roman people would stand in the place where the temple used to be, and he would declare himself to be God. Right, and this is taken up in the second letter of to the Thessalonians, mm. chapter two. Yeah, so anyone who preached against Christ could be called an antichrist, mm. and mm. like the beast in the book of Apocalypse, he's described as a person with great skills in deception. Could be a she. Mm-hmm. And a person whose lies sounded tr- true. Yeah. So he looks like a great Christian, but he's actually an agent of Satan. Right. Wow. Okay. Or, or she. Or she. Right. That's interesting. Yeah. Okay. And so this text then of 2 Thessalonians, it's, it's, is it trying to look like it was written earlier than, than it actually was? Yes. Second Thessalonians appeared in the late first or the early second centuries although it claims to have been written by the Apostle Paul, mm-hmm. who, as we said, died in 65 mm-hmm. and was killed by, by Nero. So um, they they wanted to lend it credibility by putting it in the name of Paul, but it was mm-hmm. by a follower of Paul, right? somebody mm-hmm. that knew Paul's message. It wasn't out of sync with anything Paul might have said. And, um, yeah, it gave the text more impact. And the same goes for the letters of John the Elder, these three letters which talk about Antichrist. And that John was identified with the author of the Gospel of John and the author of Revelation. Of Revelation. So the book of Revelation, the Apocalypse, and what does it have to say about the Antichrist? Well, strangely, nothing at all. Nothing at all? At the beginning of this project, I went confidently to the book of Revelation thinking I was going to find the answer to your question, who was the Antichrist, and the Antichrist is a mention. It's mentioned in Revelation. Fascinating. Instead, we have there the dragon or the beast of the sea, so it's like a sea monster, who would be followed by a beast of the land. So again, this very allegorical language about opponents of the good people. Yeah. And then there would be a time when the four evil princes ruled in the north, the south, the east and the west, who've been identified as various enemy peoples throughout history. But gradually a form of millenarianism developed with the belief that the Antichrist or some representative of Satan would rule for a thousand years before Jesus' second coming. And then you'd have the Day of Judgment, which would bring the resurrection of the righteous, and the rest of us will go to hell. Those whose logins had expired or passwords they had forgotten would go to hell. Wow. <laughs> now, this word... Maybe just for a while. Just, just for right. A few yeah. eons. Yeah, yeah, until you get a password reset and yeah. you might have a chance of getting back in. Yeah. So this word antichrist is still used a lot nowadays, and it's been used throughout history as a way of describing the worst of the worst, hasn't it? And and you can even think of Hitler as being referred to at times as the Antichrist. And now, not perhaps in relation to the Apocalypse Revelation, but as a shorthand for someone really, really bad. And I remember my, my parents back in the 70s had a, a neighbor who hated Goff Whitlam so much that he used to refer to him as the Antichrist. And when Goff narrowly won his second election in 1974, the neighbor pulled out his shotgun and blew up the television during Goff's victory speech. 
Your parents didn't live next door to my grandparents. There's a pretty good chance that they did. Yeah, they they will at least have been acquainted with them, I think. <laughs> now, um, are there any other modern figures apart from Paul Goff, um, that we can think of who who are referred to in this way? Yes, interestingly, once you start looking, you find them all over the place. So. Mm. Most recently, the Prince of the North has been identified as both Barack Obama and Donald Trump. Close Barack Obama and Donald Trump. Just depending on whether you're a Republican or a Democrat. Oh, of course. Yeah, because yeah, it's versatile, right? Yeah, it is. Yeah, so we can see it as a continuous tradition that keeps giving, mm. even in the current mm. day. And can you remind us of the significance of the Prince of the North? That sounds like something out of the Wizard of Oz. What's what's the Prince of the North? He was one of these four world leaders that were identified in Revelation Mm. as paving the way for the Antichrist. So the Prince of the East was another one, and he's been identified variously as Ayatollah Khomeini or Putin. Wow, right, okay. yeah. The Prince of the West and the Prince of the South have proven a little more elusive. Right. Okay. A bit harder to work out who they are. Listeners, if you know who they are, let us know. We'll be fascinated. Phone in. Yeah. <laughs> um, now, are there any specific uh, times in Roman history that were held up as being indicators of the dawning of a new age? And so that is as a post-apocalyptic scenario. Yes. Well, we mentioned before the accession of Constantine the Great mm-hmm. in 312, uh, ruling by himself as a sole ruler of the Western and Eastern parts of the Roman Empire from 327. So this really introduced a period of peace and stability for the Roman Empire. Under Justinian in the 6th century, we have the restoration of about half of the Byzantine Commonwealth taken back from um, the Persians, um, including a great deal of Italy and some of Spain. So he was also seen as a new David, David and Goliath. Yeah. But sometimes these emperors were considered saviors by some and antichrists by others, just like Obama or Trump. They have their as many followers as they have yeah, yeah. detractors. So it just depended on your religious or your political point of view. Yeah, it's kind of like one person's freedom fighter is another person's terrorist and vice versa. But yeah. Perhaps, yeah. Um, so look, let's now move to the fourth century a bit more specifically, um, because you do, you've mentioned Constantine a few times now. And we can think about the conversion of Constantine um, after the Battle of the Milvian Bridge in 312, often seen as an epoch-making um, event. Uh, and it provides an apocalyptic scenario good for political rhetoric, um, but also an excellent uh, time for the idea of re-establishing Rome. Yes, indeed. So um, on the eve of his battle with the Emperor Maxentius, um, Constantine, who was a bit of a newcomer, also the son of a Christian who'd been a general in Gaul, his father was Constantius, was standing on the Milvian Bridge facing the troops of Maxentius that were barring his way on across the river, um, the Tiber, to Rome and to victory in Rome. And lo and behold, he had a vision and he heard a command from heaven saying, in this sign, conquer. Mm. So it was an imperative, you will conquer. You will conquer. Sometimes yeah, translated. Yeah. So the sign was, what he saw in the vision, was the first two letters of the name of Christ, mm. which in Greek are Kai and Ro. The Kai Ro. Yeah. 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 And they sound like... And yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's tough. <laughs> yes. Uh, and in other versions of the story, it was a cross that he saw. Mm. So nevertheless, he um, put this sign on his standard and managed to lead his troops to victory. Mm. So in that sign, under that sign, he did conquer. And so this rhetoric, which had been fueled by a sense of crisis and imminent disaster, uh, came to be a story that showed that God was on the side of Christians because Constantine uh, decided out of all the many uh, Christian uh, affiliations that he had, and he had several, mm. uh, he wasn't just a Christian, that he would go with that one and that he'd try to introduce that as a legal religion first. And by the end of the fourth century, it had become the only legal religion mm. yeah. for Romans right across the empire. Yeah. So it was a very strong unifying force for a, an empire that had been quite fragmented mm. and plagued by warfare from mm. 300 years. Particularly in the third century before we get to this point, yeah. Now, in Christian accounts of events before this battle between Constantine and Maxentius, Maxentius is in the city of Rome. 
the Milvian Bridge is just outside of Rome. Um, and Maxentius is, is in Rome, depicted ordering divination and augury. And, and augury is about uh, observing patterns around birds, the flight patterns of birds and the behavior of birds and whether that tells us something about what's about to happen. And he also sacrificed frequently, and the story would make it appear then that the battle was in part a spiritual one between angels and demons. It was just a physical one between Constantine capturing Rome from Maxentius, but it also had this spiritual element to it as well. Now, what happened after the Roman state was no longer seen or could no longer be described as the whore of Babylon? Yeah. Well, for one thing, divination was not uh, not allowed anymore. It, it was bad, wasn't it? Yes. So trying to tell the future from um, animal entrails or bird mm. flights or the, the ways the sacred chickens pecked their grain. Yeah, the sacred chickens. Or dreams. They were important. Actually. Yeah. Mm. So uh, this vision kind of uh, was a form of divination, you could argue. I've looked at this question in my book on divination and dreams and divination mm. from Byzantium. To Baghdad. Yeah, a great read. Go out and get your copy. A slip then. Yeah. Okay. But also the Roman state became a supporter rather than a persecutor of the church and of Christians, and it was keen to portray itself as an agent of God's providence throughout the Roman Empire. And this played into the apocalyptic narrative that the official historians of the church uh, were putting out about Constantine and that he was on the side of the angels. And, and so the Roman emperor now... Is a supporter of Christianity um, rather than a persecutor of it. So that requires a bit of sort of reshaping of the narrative. Absolutely. And it was a gradual process. So uh, we moved from what you might call red martyrdom, where people were being killed for not making sacrifices to the empire and to the empress, to white martyrdom, where people were taking themselves out of society um, and living ascetic lives where they, you know, gave up their wealth. And so it's red and white martyrdom. Yes. Yeah. So what happens if you're a St. George or a Sydney Swan supporter? You're confused. <laughs> you're a double martyr. <laughs> <laughs> Often we are after last year's grand final. Oh, my goodness, yeah. And uh, the corollary of this is that the enemies of Constantine become portrayed as persecutors of Christians and enemies of God. Yeah. So this demonization of the enemies of the state. So it's a dangerous idea, actually. Yeah, it is. And we still see it in many um, states where the state is not separated from the church. Mm. There's no mm. distinction between uh, enemies of the person who's in charge and enemies of God. Mm. Mm. Yeah. yeah, yeah, it's pretty powerful messaging, isn't it? Yeah. Mm. Yeah. And so Nero comes into this um this reframing of Rome as the evil Roman Empire and uh, that focused on persecution and some speculation arose that Nero might still be alive. Isn't there, we come back to Nero, he's fascinated, isn't he? Because So, so people thought that an emperor who by all accounts died in AD 69 might still be alive in the 4th century. And in yes, life. that's right. It sounds crazy. Yeah. But don't forget that the emperors from the time of Augustus, so that's in the first beginning when Jesus was born, um, were claiming to be divine, not just after death but even in their own lifetime. Yeah, yeah. Yes, so that's where the idea of sacrificing, making a sacrifice to the emperor comes in, it was part of the imperial cult to recognise the leader of the state and having some sort of divinity. And Augustus was only following Caesar in this. Um, so it's not just an imperial idea. It's mm. right there at the end of the Republic. And it's had a very long history right up to Haile Selassie in the current day. Yeah, not that long ago. Yeah, I crowned the tribal king of Ethiopia. And then was acclaimed as the messiah of a new religion called Rastafarianism, mm -hmm. which was uh, came out of Ethiopia and then Jamaica, and it was a kind of Black Power movement. Mm, so right. Okay. A lot of people right. got behind it, mm -hmm. and um, yeah, he found himself probably somewhat to his own surprise mm -hmm. elevated to the role of uh, messiah. Yeah. Wow, fascinating. So when persecution ended, Christians could no longer regard. Uh, Roman emperors as a legitimate enemy. Yes, that would have been disappointing for them, mm. I think. Yeah, yeah, they'd spent a lot of time seeing them as enemies. Yeah, yeah. so it required a big 180. Um, so you, the emperors brought in uh, historians and apologists to kind of rewrite this story. 
There's a lot of rewriting goes on over time. A lot of rewriting. So Lactantius wrote his treatise on the deaths of the persecutors shortly after Constantine's accession. And at this time, expectations of an imminent end of days had, for the most part, subsided. Mm. So they needed a new narrative to kind of carry people on in the... Uh, in with the rhetoric that um, Rome was going to spread the message of Jesus all over the world. And so in that way, it was participating in bringing the end times closer. Mm, right. Because there's that verse in the New Testament that the end of days wouldn't come until everyone had had a chance to hear the gospel. Everyone had heard it. Yeah. 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 Or well, the chance to hear it. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Exactly. Whether they accepted it or not is another question. Yeah, so Lactantius thought this idea of a resurrected Nero Antichrist was ridiculous, but he notes that people were quoting the Sibylline oracles to back up their claims about Nero. Um, I think you and Eva have spoken about the yeah. Sibylline yeah. oracles in a yeah. past podcast. Yeah, that's right. Very yeah, yeah, exactly, when we talk about that. Um, and so you've mentioned Lactantius here, of course, as an important source for the for the reign of Constantine and was was connected to Constantine as a tutor of Constantine's son, Crispus. And we have the other important source, broadly contemporary source for uh, Constantine, and that is Eusebius of Caesarea, who wrote the first history of the church and the first life of Constantine, two very, very important uh, texts from this period. And he treats the emperor as some kind of a saint. Now, where did Eusebius get his ideas from? Yeah, well, um, he and Lactantius were the ones that recorded this story of the vision. Mm. And um, one of them had the the cross and the other had the Cairo as mm. being what um, Constantine saw in his vision. I think he's taking the idea of the emperor as saint from the imperial cult. Yeah, already. Oh, so it's it's developing from that. And also from the idea of Jesus as Messiah. It was a model of leadership, mm. kind of self-sacrificial leadership. So a Christian leader was trying to emulate Christ and in that way he had to be a Messiah for its people. Yeah, sure. Okay. So that's to kind of yeah. bring yeah, bring them into salvation. So once emperors have become Christians, how did they then use Christian ideas about the end of days of the apocalypse as tools in cementing their leadership? And then how does this relate to Christianity and the Judeo Christian tradition more broadly? Yeah, so uh, various apocalypses started to be written, starting with the uh, apocalypse of Pseudo-Methodius, which um, was constructed either during the Persian Wars, Rome's Wars against Persia in the 7th century, or else maybe a bit later under mm. the Arab Wars. It's an important text, this one, isn't it? It is, yeah. yeah. And it introduced the idea of the last Roman emperor. So this was a good emperor. And he prophesied, Methodius prophesied that his name would be Constans. So we see the link with Constantine again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And he'd be king of the Romans and the Greeks. So it's a united Roman Empire. He would be tall of stature, of handsome appearance, with a shining face and mm -hmm. so on. Yeah, they're never, you know, ordinary looking at them. Well, no, no. Or, uh, you know, I think Spitonius, Spitonius always give a physical description of the emperor that he was talking about. And you look at Spitonius' description of Nero, it is the total opposite of the description here. We have, um, <laughs> we have Constans, yeah. Isn't it true that some people have seen in you some similarity? Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah all the time. You know, I get mistaken for Constans. Often when I, you know, I'm walking around town, he's <laughs> <laughs> on the street and Google no. him. <laughs> He's arrived, the good last Roman emperor. He's got his own coin he that he uses at home. Oh, that's right, I do. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So, yes, there would be this last Roman emperor. Mm, yeah. Um, and so what was the reign of this last Roman emperor going to look like? Then we've got a physical description. What would... Um... What would his reign look like? Yeah, so it's it's a little bit nonspecific, mm -hmm. um, but it we know about the ending. So first he'd um, overthrow Gog and Magog. Gog and Magog. Who were uh, traditional enemies of the Jewish people, the yeah. people of Israel yep. back in um, Genesis. And then he'd voluntarily surrender his power to God mm -hmm. and to Jesus. But that's not the end of the story. Right. Okay. How... How then does this fit in with the rule of the Antichrist? Well, somewhat counterintuitively, by laying down his power, the last Roman Empire would make way for the Antichrist, 
who would be a Jew from the tribe of Dan. Right. So the last Roman emperor was meant to kind of convert all the Jews to Christianity, but there'd be this last one standing uh, from the tribe of Dan who would be the Antichrist, and then he would rule for a number of years. Mm. So um, he was, yeah, in some ways uh, not entirely successful, you you could say. Mm. Yeah. And the idea continued on for a long time because um, we see it again in the 10th and 11th centuries, is that right? Yes, that's right. So the Tib- Tibetine Sibyl was revived again. These um, Sibylline oracles were dredged up and Christianized um, and continued to find eager readers in the West in the 10th century. Uh, and then we have other tracts like the uh, tract of Hippolytus on Christ and Antichrist uh, in its in Greek. Uh, which became very popular in Byzantium in the 9th and 10th centuries, and then it was translated into Slavonic and it gave right. a whole new readership. Yeah. We can see some similar issues in more recent times. Yes, we can. So there was a big revival of end-of-the-world fever at the end of 1999. You wouldn't remember that, Eugenia. No, oh, no, 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 not at all, Roma. People have only told me about it, you know, I'm... I remember it well. I dressed up as Pope Joan for that party. Oh, Pope Joan. She's an interesting one, Pope Joan, isn't she? The preppers. The preppers. The preppers. Was, so this was for the Y2K scare mm. when we had, um, you know, a lot of people afraid that their computers were going to fail. And filling up their baths with water and things, weren't they? Because, you know, all the pumps were going to fail. Yeah. Well, you know, that has happened. So I'm told, yeah. And a lot of people took it seriously. Mm. So, mm. you know, we're not making fun of those people, obviously. It was uh, a momentous date. It was a real thing, wasn't it? Date, yeah, yeah. wasn't it? Or a Y2K task force, government task force. Yes, that's right. To try and deal with this, yeah. Yes. So the millenarians have to keep um, counting up disasters, watching the signs, keeping their fingers crossed, hoping that, you know, this pandemic perhaps was going to be it. Um, but you know, when people say that current events are apocalyptic, there's no need to be discouraged. I think, um, the end of the world has been coming for a very long time. Yeah. Yeah. It has, hasn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And so, um, it's been tempting, I guess, for people to sort of cast these last few years in, in those terms, hasn't it? I mean, we sort of talked about that and referred to that right at the beginning of this podcast. Um, what are your thoughts on that? Yeah, well, you could say that this pandemic has been an apocalyptic climax, but it's also presented opportunities, right, Mm. to do things differently. And maybe some people would argue we're now in a post-apocalyptic age where we've had the biggest uh, threat to our way of life that we've faced in recent times. Um, And we've thought about the impacts of climate change seriously perhaps for the first time in the last three years, and we see that with the Paris Accord and so on. Um, But, you know, people thought that maybe it was 2020 and then the pandemic got worse. So you can say, I think, that it's a self-fulfilling prophecy, the end of the world. You can keep looking looking for it and kind of fight it, can't you, in the events that are going on around you? Wherever you might be. Yeah. Yeah. And today, you know, it's with all of the issues around climate change and the knowledge that we have of the impacts of climate change and predictions of the future, even the immediate future that come to us via science. And can we think of the modern scientists as perhaps being the theologians of the religion of science even? Is that a, is that a way of, of thinking about that? Yeah, in in so far as they're giving us messages that we're reluctant to accept that we need to change our ways. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, especially with regard to climate change. Yeah, I would yeah. I'd say that they could be called the prophets of the religion of science. Oh, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. Well, Bronwyn, look, thank you so much for this really fascinating discussion. Obviously, we've covered a lot here. I might go back and listen to it myself a few times, but I hope we've been able to show the development of ideas about the end of times, apocalypticism especially in what we might call Western culture, but not just Western culture, of course. And that helps us to understand some of the ideas about apocalypticism that we see increasingly discussed today in the worlds of politics, religion, and science. So thank you once again, Bronwyn. Thanks, Peter. Pleasure. Hi, Peter. Once more uh, together here. Hi again, Eva. To to discuss how the uh, podcast went. Uh, How did it work for you? What did you get out of it? Wonderful. I mean, Bronwyn um, has just got so much 
you know, she's such a specialist in this field. So um, it's so terrific to interview somebody like her. And of course, she's she's a colleague of ours on the project. So, um, I mean, it's a, it's a longish podcast, but this one, I feel like we could have gone on for a lot longer because there's so much material. We cover uh, clearly some, some really in-depth issues. And one of the things I really um, liked about it um, was the way that we try and help people think about these issues today. You know, so we sort of introduced the podcast thinking about modern issues and all that's happened, particularly in the last three years. We go back in time, but then we come back forward to think about, okay, well, what, what, what now are some of the lessons perhaps um, that we might learn today and leave people to, to think about in Your the context. Your comment about number 666 on credit cards God. And bank cards, it sounds crazy, doesn't it? It's just, it's really out there, that one. But, I, you know, I'm old enough to remember this. You're just old <laughs> enough to remember it, but I remember it. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. It's no wonder bank card doesn't exist anymore. You know, we had to move on to something well, else, didn't we? Uh, absolutely. It's anti-Christ we're dealing with here. Not, you know, it's not a joke. It didn't yeah, just yeah. get a near or a bad reputation, um, as it were, uh, Actually, it affects the lives of many people. I mean, incidentally, I was laughing loud when I was listening to this discussion about Rastafari religion. You know, for years, for years, I used to confuse the Rastafari religion with the Rasta hairstyle. So I just couldn't resist <laughs> laughing at that when I heard you talking about it. I'm like, gosh, this is such a serious matter and I'm making a joke out of that. But it's true. It does affect a number of people around the world, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. But, and that's right. And, you know, for, for a lot of us, we can remember things like the Y2K. You know, Y2K, we look back at it now and think, you know, oh, well, you know, we know really nothing came from that. But it was a big deal at the time, a big issue at the time. And, you know, how will people look back now the way we've thought about the last three years with things like COVID and in countries like Australia, bushfires, um, all of the weather issues that we've seen around the world flooding here and in New Zealand, uh, and our responses to that, there'll be people into the future looking back at how we've interpreted this. Uh, so, you know, we're contributing in the end to that long history that I think we bring out in this podcast about um, apocalypticism, um, about uh, the, the, end, the end of times, um, about the Antichrist. There, there are other people who will be referred to as the Antichrist into the future. Um, we can see them today. We can see them not so long ago, and there will be others who 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 uh, receive that label in common um, language, um, uh, regular language in the Absolutely. future as well. Oh. And being being me and cynical, I have to say clearly, we are rooting so, for some very interesting academic careers in the future and more projects just like ours. I mean, we are doing yes, crisis absolutely. of leadership from the third to the tenth century, but what about the fantastic projects, say, hundred years from now, <laughs> the years twenty twenty to twenty twenty four? Yep. Australian Research exactly, Council, watch out. Yeah. Exactly. Um, they better make some policies that allow for enough funding for humanities to, to ensure future <laughs> colleagues get their, their say, um, as it were. Yes. Thank you mm. very, oh. very much, both to you and Bronwyn, for a most interesting uh, discussion, which I hope will attract the attention and the interest of our audiences as well. Oh, it's a pleasure, Eva. Thank you again. Once more, thank you everyone. This is Ivan Agnosulautiris from Tales from the End of Times. This is our fifth podcast. As we said in the beginning, we have another two to go. Please stay tuned with us. It won't be long before we record the final two episodes of the series. Thank you. Thank you.